0: It's so good to be here with everyone. We are concluding our four words sermon series today. We are concluding the sermon series we've been in for the last three weeks. And we've really been talking about throughout this whole sermon series, this idea that God has a plan for you going forward. This idea that God has a purpose and plan in mind for your life And his purpose and his plan in your life is something that you can experience in all of your day-to-day decisions. And so for many of us, we struggle with what to do in our day-to-day decisions. We approach a fork in the road, and we don't know whether to go this way or that way. Or realistically, it's not a fork in the road. It's not option A or B. Wouldn't life be easy if all we had to choose from was option A or B? But for many of us, we know what it's like to walk into a circumstance where it's not option A or B. Instead, it is the roundabout with a thousand possible exits. And there's a bunch of different turns you can take. And there are positives and negatives about each possibility and each option in your life. And what we do is the same thing that I do when I face decisions like, what show am I going to watch tonight on Netflix which is we approach those decisions and we often get paralyzed by fear and indecision. And so this whole sermon series has been rooted in this idea that there is a way forward. There is a way forward. And so these four words have been a way forward for us. It's been a process for progress to move the the ball forward, to move our lives forward, to chase after God where he's leading us to go next and to do that with all of the creativity and the freedom that he gives. And so we've looked at this idea that in these four words, we've seen what it means to discern the will of God, to decide and to decide what it is that we're going to decide a course of action, and to have a decision-making process that allows us to seek out what is the God-glorifying thing to do by this simple question, can I do this, can I make this decision in the name of Jesus? And then last week, we talked about our expectations. Last week, we talked about once we have discerned the will of God, and once we have decided on a course of action, We now have to move forward with some expectation. And for many of us, that's where we can so often lose hope and lose trust. Because our expectations will so often for us cause us to view the circumstance as bigger than it is, to view the situation as bigger than it is. For us to get caught up in the momentary pains, the momentary suffering, the momentary trouble, and suddenly that momentary pain or suffering or trouble can become all-consuming, can become all-encompassing. And next thing we know, we find ourselves giving up on a decided course of action. But what we discovered last week is this truth, and we found it so beautifully in this story in Acts chapter 3, that we should never let... Our expectations keep us from what God wants us to experience because we worship a God who wants to do more in your life and give more in your life and pour out more in your life than you would ever expect. And so thank you, God, that God doesn't make me a slave to my expectations. Thank you, God, that he doesn't give me just what I expected because he gives me so much abundantly more than I would have ever asked or imagined. And so we learned that our experience in Christ should never be hamstrung by our expectations. And so today, as we conclude this sermon series, we're going to be looking at this final word, to extol. Now, extol is a, well, let's just say it's a King James word. It's, it's a King James word, and, and, and there's nothing wrong with, with the King James. There's, there's plenty of people who, who read a King James Bible. We have plenty of people here who read a King James Bible, um, and, and it's wonderful. It's be- beautiful language, but when we use a word like extol today, one of the things that we don't realize is what does this word even mean? And so this is what extol means, to praise highly, to glorify praise highly or glorify. So our four words forward, our process for progress has been to discern the will of God, to decide on a course of action, to expect that God is going to be faithful no matter what the season or the storm, and for us to extol well, extolling is a hugely important thing as a believer, as a Christian, because we have a story to share. We've got someone to praise. We've got someone to lift up highly. We have a God to glorify. And so we need to remember that no matter where you've been or what you've been through, if you are walking with Jesus Christ, you have a reason to extol, which is another way of saying, you have a story to share. You've got a story to share. You've got a story to share of what God has done in your life. Now, real quick, show of hands, how many of you grew up in church? All right, that's that's a lot of you. Is there anyone who didn't grow up in church? Okay, you're my favorite people. I mean, look, all these religious people are fine, but you guys are my favorites. Because here's the thing. Growing up in church can so often rob us of the power of our story. And here's how I know that. Because we have an experience of maybe going to church services or being in Christian environments where someone stands up to give a testimony. And we've heard some great testimonies, right? We've heard the person who's just gotten out of prison. Well... I've harmed people, I've hurt people, I've broken the law. Here's the long list of all the horrible deeds that I've done. But you know, here I was in prison and I came to know Jesus. And now my life is spent glorifying Him and honoring Him and doing all these good things. And that's a powerful testimony. It is. It's an absolutely powerful testimony. But what happens if you're the kind of person who lives a pretty average life, a pretty ordinary life? you end up feeling like your testimony has no power. Like your story has no power. You end up walking through life going, yeah, I wish I had a great testimony like them. I wish I had a great story to share of all the horrible bad things I had done and now all the ways that I'm good. But can I tell you that that whole idea is rooted in a pretty poor theology? It's rooted in a really poor view of God because it assumes that our testimony is I was bad, and now, thanks to Jesus, I'm good. It assumes that the power of our testimony is that we once were morally pretty awful, and now we are moral superstars. But can I tell you that that's not a story of God? That's a story of bad becoming good, and there's There's a whole aisle of self-help books at your local bookstore that'll tell you how to do that. You don't need Jesus for that. You don't need Jesus for moral transformation. Can I tell you the truth of God's word? We weren't bad people who have been made good. We were dead people. We weren't bad, we weren't misbehaving, we weren't making mistakes. We were dead, six feet under, in the ground, end of story. And Jesus made us alive. We didn't go from bad to good. We went from dead to alive. And so no matter what you have or haven't done in your life, you still have the same powerful testimony that every other follower of Jesus has, which is, I was dead, and now I'm alive. And I got to tell you, resurrection, that's a story to share. Resurrection is a story to share. So don't ever feel like, because maybe you haven't done horrible things or you haven't done enough good things, don't, don't ever feel like you don't have a powerful story to share. We extol, we praise highly, we glorify God because we have a story to share and the story we have to share is that we went from death to life. It's an interesting scripture I want to look at. I'm realizing now this may have been a little small. So this is Luke chapter 8 up. This is Luke 8, 26 through 39. We're going to kind of skip around a little bit. Um, And and so here's the gist of the story. Jesus is, this is his first year of ministry, and Jesus is primarily ministering around the Sea of Galilee, this kind of... uh, it's not even a sea. It's, it's Lake of Tiberias. It's about seven miles wide and about 13 miles uh, north to south. It's a lake. It was the, really the, the main fishing place. It was the, the, the great economic boom of the area. So most of the Jewish people who lived in the northern part of Israel, they lived in or around the Sea of Galilee, and most of them were connected in some way to fishing. And that's where Jesus is from. I heard an amen for fishing. That's right. The Lord your God was a fisherman. So just remember that. So when you're out on the boat and you're not catching anything, just go, My Savior has been through this too. And so. Jesus spends most of his first year of ministry traveling around to these different fishing communities. And one of the things that Jesus ultimately does is he kind of crosses into these areas. So the, the entire western and especially northwestern ridge of the Sea of Galilee was predominantly Jewish communities. But along the entire eastern ridge of the Sea of Galilee was predominantly Gentile communities in the area. And so They would occasionally work together, they would trade together, but it wasn't wasn't a strong relationship. It wasn't this kind of great friendship. It was Jews who were considered kind of second-class people in the Roman Empire, and then there were Gentiles, many of whom were Roman citizens. So they had a, a lot more privilege than the Jewish people did. And so Jesus is ministering, and this is what happens. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. So now they are on the eastern ridge of the Sea of Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out onto land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. Translation, here's a guy who is demonically possessed He's going crazy. He can't keep clothes on. Every time they put chains on him, he's breaking them off. And so the people of the city do with him what we often do with people who are mentally ill, which is we put them away from everyone else. So no one has to see them or look at them. And so where do they put this man? They have him living in a cave among the tombs. So he's basically living where they keep dead bodies. He's hanging out in the morgue. Jesus commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Then the demons came out of the man. Then people went out to see what had happened and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Here's this guy in the community. Everyone knows who he is. We're all terrified of him. We'd all be happier if he wasn't here. We'd all be happier if he wasn't a part of our community. Let's exile him as far as we can out. We'll make him live among the tombs. And suddenly, this son of a Jewish carpenter shows up. He gets off a boat, walks up to this man, commands the demonic spirits to come out of him, and now he is clothed and in his right man, sitting with this Jesus. And so if you're walking into that circumstance, if you're walking into that scenario, you're going, I don't understand what's happened here, but it scares me. There's a power at work here that I don't understand because we had written this guy off as dead. We had written him off as dead. And here he is, alive. Jesus got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. So I want you to see what's happening here. There is a man. By the way, this is not a Jewish man. This is a Gentile man. This is, this is one of those people that even for the religious Jewish leaders, they thought a guy like this was too far gone. He was too far gone. He, was, he had done too much. He was, he was not redeemable. And many of us have gone through that kind of life. Many of us have had the experience where we've crossed a line we thought we would never cross, and now suddenly we're in a place where we thought, I am not redeemable. There's no hope for me. There's no future for me. And what do we see in Jesus? Jesus brings life where there was once death. And as soon as Jesus is getting ready to leave, what does the man do? You brought life. There was death here and you brought life. I want to go with you. I'm going with you wherever. Jesus, let me be one of the disciples. Let me come along with you on the journey. I'm on board because you have changed my life. You have raised me up out of the grave. But What does Jesus say to him? What does Jesus say to this this person who's experiencing real life for the first time? Go home. Go home and do what? Declare. Go home and declare. You see, Jesus is explaining to this man that if you want to highly praise, if you want to glorify, if you want to extol, the best way you can extol is take your story and share your story of coming up out of the grave and into life. That's how you extol. You extol the story where you go, this is what God has done. Let me tell you about what Jesus has done in my life. Let me tell you, I wasn't bad and then became good. I was dead and now I'm alive and Jesus is the one who did it. All the glory and all the honor and all the praise goes to him. That's what it means to extol because we have a story to share. Now, your story may not, may not be demon-possessed hanging out in the graveyard, But your story is no less death to life than the demon-possessed man. And so we have a story to share. And we don't just have a story to share. We don't just extol because we have a story to share. But we have a story to share of the goodness of God. It's not just that we've got a good story. I am a good... Trust me, I grew up in a family of storytellers. Being a good storyteller was a currency in my family. We grew up, my family has a cabin in the North Georgia mountains, and we would spend summers around the fire at this cabin, and you were only kind of allowed to speak with the adults if you could tell a story well. So at a very young age, I learned to tell a story well. Now, most of the time, telling a story well means you take the truth and you stretch it. I'm waiting for that amen from the fishermen again. But here's the beautiful thing about Jesus and what he's done in our lives. When we tell the story about what Jesus has done, it's the most compelling, the most engaging story you have to share, and you don't have to lie one bit. You get to tell the truth. And the whole truth and nothing but the truth that because of our sin and our shame, we were dead and in the ground. We were buried with no hope. There was nothing we could do to raise ourselves up out of the grave. And so Jesus came along, sent by the Father to die on a cross to pay the debt that we owed. And then when he got up three days later by the power of the Holy Spirit to live a brand new resurrected life, he raised us up from the grave with him. That's the truth. We don't have to stretch it there. We just get to go, here's the most compelling, engaging story the world will ever hear. And it is the story of the goodness of God. Some scripture for us. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. That's Psalm 145.4. By the way, that's what's happening next door. With our children's ministry right now, that's what's going on. It's one generation commending the works of God to another. And by the way, when those kids who we brought up here and prayed over in 30 and 40 years, they're going to be sitting where you're sitting, and they're going to be praying over their kids, commending the works of God to the next generation. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Psalm 105.1. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Translation, God has done great things, and no one's going to hear about it if you don't tell your story. God has done great things. He has been good to you and he has been good to me and no one will hear it if we don't tell our story. And so that's why we extol. We don't just extol because we have a story to share of the goodness of God. We have a story to share for the good of man. We have a story to share for the good of man. That human beings, brothers and sisters, friends, family, co-workers, classmates, the people that we come in contact with every single day, there's a story that you have to tell and they need to hear it. It's for their good. This is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was, was a Lutheran priest in Germany in the 1930s. And he is my spiritual hero. Dietrich Bonhoeffer died in 1945 at the close of World War II. After having been in a German concentration camp for two years, he was killed. Some, there is some belief that it was Hitler's final order before taking his own life was that Dietrich Bonhoeffer be killed before the camps were liberated. Dietrich Bonhoeffer had the opportunity because of his incredible intellect and incredible education. In 1938, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, as the Third Reich was coming to power in Germany, as Hitler and the Nazis were coming into power in Germany, Dietrich Bonhoeffer had the the opportunity to leave and go to New York City and become a professor at Union Theological Seminary. He was there for roughly a year and a half. And as he continued to engage with the word of God and continued to encounter people in New York City that had no idea what was happening in Europe, he felt compelled to go back. And so Dietrich Bonhoeffer, towards the end of 1939, returns to Germany, and he becomes one of the loudest opponents of Hitler and the Nazi party. And he does it every single day from the church where he is serving. And he's asked over and over again, Dietrich, you were safe. You were safe. You could live a long life in New York City. You've worked so hard and you have You have earned the privilege that has been given to you and you could be safe. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer went, I have a story to tell and the story that I have to tell is for the good of man. And there's no one who needs to hear this story more than the Nazi soldiers marching outside of the church. Dietrich Bonhoeffer's going, none of us. None of us are so bad that we are beyond redemption. And so the people who need to hear the story of Jesus the most are the people that I view as my enemies. And so Dietrich Bonhoeffer becomes an outspoken critic of the Third Reich and everything the Nazis stand for. But you know what they do every Sunday in his church? They pray for the salvation of the men Marching outside of the church doors. He recognizes that the story we have to share is not just a good story for us, it's a good story for man. He writes during this period of time one of, his, one of his lesser works, it's strange to call one of his works a lesser work, but if you ever read The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I promise you it'll change your life. And so he wrote this around that time, this is from his book Life Together. He says, God has willed that we should seek and find God's living word in the testimony of other Christians. Translation, God has willed that we should find his word in your story. It's your story. The story you have to share of what Christ has done, that's where God has willed us to find the divine word, in your story in the mouths of human beings. Therefore, Christians need other Christians who speak God's word to them. They need other Christians as bearers and proclaimers of the divine word of salvation. We have a story to share. And the story we have to share is not just our story, and it's not just a story of how good God has been. It is a story for the good of man. And I want you to know right now, as you you see the news, as, as you roll your eyes, as you go by one article after another on your Facebook feed, as you are so discouraged by what you see in the world around you, I want to let you know something. God has placed you in the community where you live He's placed you there. He's placed you in the family that you have. He's placed you in the neighborhood where you live. He's placed you in the job where you're at. He's placed you in the school where you're at so that you can tell your story, so that you can share your story of the goodness of God and you can share your story for the good of man because we have a world that is desperate to hear the story. This is what Paul says. In Acts chapter 20, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. And what task is that? The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. It's Paul who's done so much and he started so many churches and he's reached so many people. Paul is almost solely responsible for the fact that you and I here today are Gentiles and we are followers of Jesus. And what does Paul say? Paul goes, here's my my task in life. Here's the thing God has purposed me to do, to tell my story to as many people as possible. Why? Why? Because that story is life. That story is life. And there are so many religions and philosophies and moralities in this world. There are so many points of view in this world that will tell you that you are bad. And if you can just stop being bad and be good, things will be better for you. And some of us have experienced the slavery of trying to follow through with that. Some of us have experienced the slavery of legalism and moral perfectionism where we're going, if I can just be good enough, if I can just be good enough, if I can just be good enough, somehow I will earn the love of God. And that's a lie. The truth of God's word is that you and I are loved fully, completely, and perfectly right in the grave where we stand. And we're loved too much to be left there by a God who lifts us up out of the grave and takes us from death to life. That's our story, and it's a story the world needs, and it's the story that you and I have the task of testifying about. That's all testify means, by the way. Testify is this great legal term. Testify just means that you are offering your testimony, you are offering your firsthand experience, and you are giving the account of your firsthand experience to testify to the truth of, some, of a claim. And so when we claim that Jesus has taken us from death to life, our testimony is that we are alive. We're testifying to the truth of the claim. This is Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. And they have conquered the accuser by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Revelation is the last book in your Bible. It's where we get this big word from called eschatology, which basically just means our view of the end. Our view of how things end, how does the story end, and we find that in Revelation. And, and let me give you something away. I, I don't mean to be a spoiler here, but, but this is how Revelation ends. Jesus is victorious. Christ is King, Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and he is seated on a throne forever. Amen. Come on. But here's the thing that's so incredible to me about the way Revelation is written. That somehow, in some mysterious way, I don't begin to understand and could not fathom a way to comprehend or explain to you. Somehow, according to Revelation 12, 11, the victory of Christ The victory of those who follow Jesus is tied not just to the work of Jesus. Jesus has done all the work. It's not that we suddenly are coming alongside Jesus and then we're throwing our work in as well and then that's enough. All that Jesus has done is enough. He's the one who died on the cross. He's the one who was raised again on the third day. He's the one who has done the work. And yet somehow our victory over the enemy, our victory over the accuser, our victory over the one who wants to stand and go, here's all the ways that you're bad. Here's all the ways that you're not good enough. Our victory is tied to the word of our testimony. Our victory is tied to a story that we have to share. And so we praise highly and we glorify. We praise highly and we glorify because, friends, we have a story to share of the goodness of God for the good of man. Right now, in your home, in your neighborhood, in your family, in your workplace, in your school. Right now, there are people in your life who need to hear the story that you have to share. And I'll be honest, maybe for us, the reason that we don't share our story is because we get so insecure we go, well, hey, I've got a, I, I want to tell people about Jesus, but you know, I'm not a theologian. I want to tell people about Jesus, but I'm not a pastor. I want to tell people about Jesus, but you know, I don't even think I've read the whole Bible. Here's the good news. When you tell people about Jesus, you don't have to tell them everything about Jesus. Because you don't know everything about Jesus. No human mind knows everything about Jesus. He is God. We could not possibly comprehend all of who he is. So you you don't have that responsibility. There's no obligation for you to tell people everything about Jesus. Here's what you have to tell people. You have to tell people what Christ has done for you. You tell people what Jesus has done in your life. You tell people your story. And guess what? There is no better expert in the world to tell your story than you. You are the only person authorized to tell your story. You're the only person commanded to tell your story. So we glorify God We praise Him highly. We extol Christ. Because once we have discerned the will of God and we have decided on a course of action and we have expected that God would be faithful in all things, we come to the end of that season. We come to the end of that decision. We come to the end of our lives and we tell a story. This week, Billy Graham died at 99. Billy Graham, who was ordained as a pastor in 1939 right here in Putnam County. Billy Graham spent his entire life telling one story. This is what Jesus has done for me. And Billy Graham touched millions of lives and Nearly a quarter billion people heard him tell that story. But the beautiful thing about what Billy Graham did is Billy Graham told his story. And now his life is over. And we could be people that continue to tell Billy Graham's story, but I'm not authorized to tell Billy Graham's story, and I'm not an expert witness to Billy Graham's story. But you know what? I can tell Rob's story all day long. You can tell your story all day long. As long as you've got breath in your lungs, as long as your heart is still pumping, God's got a story for you to tell for the good of man.